This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden and I am joined today by Sarah Ray Lancaster, our social media editor, writer, uh, wedding guide, designer, maker, extraordinaire. You, you do a lot for us, Sarah. Kind of a jack of all trades, yeah. Right. You've been on the podcast once before. Uh, welcome back. If you if you listened to the previous episode, we talked all about the Door Wedding Magazine. Today we're going to talk about something else that I think a lot of people are going to really enjoy. We're going to talk about fall and food. And I, I, I don't know what more you could ask for in a podcast episode than to hear all about fall and food. They're everybody's two favorite things. It sounds kind of like a match made in heaven. Right. So you wrote a number of pieces for us in this week's issue of The Pulse having to do with the season and then also answering some interesting questions about food in a couple of different ways. I want to start with uh, one piece that you wrote basically answering the question like what happens to food waste up here food mm-hmm. waste is uh, kind of a big topic all over the place and i think one day we were all just kind of brainstorming and we were wondering where it all goes up here and you've you've looked at this from a number of angles right i think the first story you wrote was on a, a farm that's using composting local composting to try to enrich their soil uh, and then you took it to the next step to find out where some of the grocery stores or restaurants what are they doing with their food waste so walk me through this journey and what you found out Sure. Well, it first started just with my own personal interest. My husband had started composting for our farm. I think it was late last summer. And so that's kind of just been on my radar and watching him kind of perfect that and watching what it does for our own soil and found out about Mighty Wind Farms uh, here in Door County and how they were doing something similar. And but they took it another step where they were asking for donations of compost or pre-consumer kitchen scraps, veggies and fruit from not only restaurants in the area and I think maybe some grocery stores as well, but customers. So if customers came to the roadside stand, they could deposit veggie and uh, produce and fruit scraps. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. So that kicked off the journey of just finding how that benefited their farm, what it's also doing just for food waste in general um, and the environment. So these kitchen scraps aren't going into the landfills. And from there, I've always wondered when I've gone grocery shopping and seen things that are just a little too ripe for me to want to purchase because I know they're not going to last very long or they're just overripe for maybe my my taste preference, what happens to those items in the grocery store? So that kicked off the follow-up story where I talked with a few grocery stores in the area about what do they do with that produce once it's it's past its peak. And it was really kind of an interesting path that I was led down. Yeah, I, I like this. Uh, the, the Mighty Wind story that you did was really fascinating because it's this uh, this kind of cyclical 
idea, right? So the, mm-hmm. the dining up here, the farm to table dining is great. And then to be able to recycle those scraps back into the farms to create more produce, is, it's a really nice relationship to have. Uh, so then to take it the next step and find out where some of these bigger places, some of the grocery stores and restaurants, are, what they're doing with their composting, uh, I think was the next step in the progress. So what did you find out or walk me through some of the places that you spoke to and, and where are these food scraps going? Sure, sure. So the first place I spoke with was Main Street Market in Egg Harbor. And I found out that they, this this past spring, teamed up with the village of Egg Harbor for a pilot program for composting. Uh, the village had had a composting site prior to, but that was mostly for your lawn clippings and yard waste type compost. And they were interested in adding in more of what's considered the green compost. So your brown compost is more of your um, leaves and, and that sort of yard debris where your green compost is going to be more of the food scraps. And through that program, they've not only been able to get Main Street Market on board with any of, you know, say the watermelon rinds from uh, the salads in the deli or produce in the produce department that might be past its peak Uh, They were also able to get other businesses on board and a few restaurants in the area. So that was really interesting to see how the community is coming together to then create this compost, which will then go back and be used in village gardens and flower beds, um, be available to residents, and then also be available to those businesses that have contributed the compost. And their goal, uh, this is one of their goals through their green tier community, program is to get other communities within Door County on board with similar programs. So you just kind of have this whole countywide compost program going on, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, especially when you think about like the different pillars of the economy up here. You've got tourism, you have industry, and then you have agriculture. Mm -hmm. So to Mm -hmm. be able to see the three of them working together in that way, uh, is mm-hmm. is really cool, uh, especially when you know the the town is collecting compost and it goes back into say the beautification of the town with the the flower beds and stuff like that, and also being uh, accessible to the residents of the town. And we'll get kind of uh, that that segues us really nicely. But I wanted to ask if there was anything else about the composting story that you thought was really interesting to share. What I also thought was interesting was the fact that there is still a need, even though we have these programs popping up. Uh, there's still a need, regardless of how much or how little green compost uh, a business or a restaurant might be producing. So for an example, I thought it was interesting that uh, Hatch Distillery doesn't contribute a lot, but they do contribute all of their lemon rinds when they make their limoncello. So it just kind of went to show that you don't have to do a lot to make a difference when it comes to this initiative and this program. Every little bit helps. Um, and then there are also stores that they don't really have formal programs, but they are more than willing to work out something with somebody that wants that food waste essentially for composting purposes. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I highly recommend everybody check this story out because there will be more details in that. But I, I did want to pivot to our other food story that you worked on, which is kind of in the same vein of this like um, do-it-yourself kind of uh, approach to food. And I really like this story because my wife has 
finally yielded vegetables this year. She's wanted to have her own little garden for a long time. This year, she finally did it, and she was able to get lettuce and zucchini and all sorts of stuff out of her garden for the first time. And so you have some experience in uh, harvesting and homesteading and that kind of stuff, but you also spoke to a couple other people to get some more uh, advice and tips for anybody who might be an aspiring homesteader. Um, walk me through a little bit of your experience in, you know, growing your own food and, and tell me a little bit about what you learned from some of the folks that you talked to. Sure. Sure. Well, I would probably categorize myself as more of a, a, an aspiring wannabe homesteader. I have these grand plans and visions of kind of this little house on the prairie life of where I'm growing my own food and have my little farmstead. And, we're making baby steps towards that. Um, but I do have to give my husband most of the credit when it comes to actually making sure things get in the ground when they need to, things are harvested when they're supposed to be. He does a lot of that, um, and just kind of keeps things on track. So I definitely don't want to take all the credit, but it's a topic that's fascinated me nonetheless for years, even long before we had some acreage to grow things on when we were just in a little city lot, we always had a garden of some sort, um, but I get to the point in the season where things are just coming at you full force and the counters are overflowing with that late season produce. And I almost become overwhelmed of what to do with it and how to process it. And so I reached out to some people who I'm, I'm just always amazed by that with their lives, they're able to keep on top of that sort of thing and actually put it away for the winter and be able to use it during those cold months and use it during the spring. And I found really some changes I can make to our own plan. And it starts out with growing what you like. And I thought that was probably the biggest takeaway from the piece, because when you get those seed catalogs, it's so tempting to just buy everything and want to try new varieties and grow all these cool new things. When really, if you don't already eat it and consume it in some way, shape or form, you're not going to, if you grow it yourself, it's just probably going to go to waste, which is something I definitely, you know, even though you can compost it, I would rather put it to use than compost everything that I grow. Right. And that, that sounds like, it seems like such an easy thing to think about, like, oh, grow what you like or else you won't eat it. But like, even in my wife's vegetable garden, we, we would harvest the lettuce for salads and cherry tomatoes and stuff like that. But she also planted peppers, which we never used and radishes, (laughs) which we never used. And she got a big, uh, zucchini out of there and I don't know what that's going to go into because uh, we, don't, we don't usually have that kind of stuff but she just wanted to plant a variety of stuff for her first garden just to see what happened but it, it definitely makes sense like in year two not to waste the space and time to grow something that you know we didn't have a use for this year so we'll probably double up on the lettuce and cherry tomatoes because we use those every week sure yeah And I also thought the foraging aspect was interesting. I mean, we've done the typical, you know, morel hunts in the spring and and that type of foraging. But in talking to the people that I did for the interview and for the article, it was also fun to see all the other things you can continue to forage, even this time of year when we tend to think things are slowing down and and going to bed. Um, One thing that was new to me was using the berries off of sumac to make like a fermented soda. I thought that was just wild and, mm. and kind of fun. And then I even learned from my mom in talking to her about the piece I was working on. She grows her own grapes to make jam or to make jelly and learning that 
you can also use those wild grapes that you find to to do the same thing. I thought that was really interesting as well. So it's it's kind of put something else on my radar of, you know, what's right here in my own backyard that I might be able to use. Right. Or even things that you might not think about as food, right? So uh, people might remember Sam Curserbet worked for us for a while at Peninsula Filmworks, put together a lot of really great videos, and he was a big forager. Uh, one of my favorite stories about Sam is often we'd be walking, you know, in the woods or somewhere and he would find a plant and he would go, do you think this is edible? And before I could answer him, he would put it in his mouth, which always made me laugh. And I was like, what does that tell you? Like, do you, <laughs> do you learn something about it every time you eat it? Like you unlock a new ingredient, like, oh, this would be really great in something. Uh, but he put together a cool video where he harvested violets from his property and made a simple syrup. So even things that you're not thinking about, like as immediately edible, finding things in your yard that you can use to create other types of things um, sure. or, you know, in my previous property, we had a ton of ramps. So we would harvest our ramps to make ramp butter every year. And that was really cool. Um, and then that was just in our backyard. So when, mm -hmm. you, when you start to think about like, what do I actually have around me? Uh, that I can use and, and how do I do it in a sustainable way you can kind of supplement what you're doing already in addition to having an herb garden or a vegetable garden. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the other part of this was some of the, the more homesteading things, right? Um, animals, chickens, that kind of stuff. You have chickens on your property, right, Sarah? We have chickens. They're egg laying right now. I'm, I'm working my way up to being able to use them for meat production. <laughs> I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm taking baby steps. I have these grand plans and these, these ideas. Um, but for right now, yes, we do have uh, some egg layers and that's been a ton of fun. Just not only knowing where your food is coming from, but with our two-year-old, it's also a lot of fun to involve him in the process and having him go out and help me collect the eggs or just learning how to care for the animals. Um, and it also works in, you know, with the food scrap piece too. They get a lot of the fruits and the veggie scraps that we don't consume. So it all is kind of this really neat cycle, um, if you will. And so that's been a lot of fun, but right now we're just limited to, um, more pet goats and some, some chickens, but there's, there's talk to maybe expand some of those plans down the road. So follow me down this sidebar real quick. It's going to be a little uh -huh. bit of a tangent. Uh, I had my parents up for the, the weekend last week and my dad came in one day and he was like, did you know that your neighbors have chickens? And I was like, yeah, I knew that, that, that they had chickens. And they, he said, do they have a rooster? And I said, no, um, I've never heard the rooster. So I don't think that they have one. And he was like, well, then I wonder what they use them for. Cause don't you need a rooster for the hens to lay eggs? No, and I was like, I don't think so. Yeah, I think, no, they'll, they, they lay without a rooster. You only need them if you want to hatch your own chicks. Right. So then that opened up a bunch of questions like how do roosters fertilize the eggs? And we won't go down that road right now. But the the big question that I have is, is that a domestication thing? Like, is it like a over time the uh, the hens that laid more eggs lived longer because they weren't slaughtered and therefore the ones that were more fertile, you know, just pass oh. their DNA down? Is that a domestication thing or is that something that, you know, has always been the case? That's really actually kind of interesting. I'm not sure I know the answer. I know there's certain breeds that lay more than others because when we buy our chicks or we look at adding certain breeds of chickens to our flock, um, certain they, they tell you how many eggs per year they lay. So certain varieties will lay almost an egg a day. Others are maybe one every couple of days and some are only about half the year. Hmm. So, 
And I know in the winter, they slow down. Um, they're definitely affected by daylight and how much daylight they have. That can affect their egg-laying habits and how many they'll give us. Um, uh, you may have given me a new research project. Well, if anybody knows the answer, uh, shoot me an email, andrew at ppulse.com. The last thing that I wanted to talk about for this food piece uh, is kind of the next step, like you mentioned, preserving food, canning food, that kind of stuff for the winter. Like I said, uh, my wife's vegetable garden was very much, you know, pick it from the garden and put it on your plate kind of stuff. We didn't preserve anything. Uh, that's probably going to be a year two or three project for us is getting into that level of it. But walk me through some of the tips that you learned about how to stretch your harvest season out over the winter. Sure, sure. Well, one thing I learned, and this was a tip given to me by a couple of other people in the area who were more experienced at preserving and canning in in the summer, I just, I can't keep up. Um, and there just wasn't going to be time for me to have a weekend to dedicate to, to canning. But what I learned is you can actually freeze a lot of that produce and then take it out of the freezer when you do have a little more time and go through the canning process at that point. So things like berries for jams or tomatoes even for sauces are things that you can kind of prep and freeze and put them away for a while. It's a little bit quicker to freeze things than to go through the whole canning process. And then when you have time, take them out and, and go through those canning recipes. Um, I'm also trying my hand at drying a few herbs from the garden this year. I was inspired by some of the people I interviewed to do that. So we'll, we'll see how that experiment turns out. I don't have a food dehydrator, which is one method, but you can also just do the, you know, the old fashioned hang them and dry them um, method. And then you can also just use an oven on a very low setting to dry them out. So I'm playing with that and seeing how that works. And then I've never done the pressure canning. Um, there are a few people I've talked to that do that, but I've also learned that a lot of it you can do just with a water, the water bath canning method. I think the big takeaway is that there's, there's still time. Uh, you can slow it down. It seems like it's a big thing right around this time of the year is to get everything out of the ground and to get it all put away. But there's a couple tips that you can use to give yourself a little bit more time. So it doesn't have to Absolutely. all be all at once. Absolutely. Awesome. Let's pivot now, Sarah, to talk about fall a little bit because, hey, it's October, uh, <laughs> like tomorrow, which is kind of wild I to know. think about. But uh, it's it's going to be peak fall here in a couple of days. And so the two things I wanted to talk about a little bit is the fall colors, what they're going to look like, when they're going to happen, that kind of thing. And then uh, what to do outside when the fall colors have happened, because what's the point of having beautiful colors on the trees if you're not going to go enjoy them? So for the fall colors... I talked to a couple different people because I, I really don't know much about science, uh, believe it or not. So I talked to some people who do, and I tried to get some predictions for not only when the colors are going to peak, but also what they might look like this year. And I found some pretty interesting things. So I'll very briefly walk through the science of the fall colors, and then I'll give you the predictions that I found. Ready? Okay. So fall colors, I like to look at them as like a burst of lively energy right at the end here, but they're more 
they're more like the final moments of the leaf before they die. It's kind of somber in a way for as beautiful as they are. It is a signal that their impending death is on the horizon. Uh, oh, that's kind of sad. I know, right? Um, <laughs> Kagan Haringa, she's at Crossroads at Big Creek, and she she shared that uh, quote with me, which was very somber. But uh, leaves are green because of chlorophyll. And when nights start to cool off in the end of summer and beginning of fall, it signals to the tree to create this kind of like stopper almost at the the base of the leaf. So it's not going to bring in any more chlorophyll. That's what triggers the leaves to change. Um, And it happens around the same time every year because as the nights cool off, that's the signal for it. However, um, it's not an exact science because temperatures fluctuate, but the temperature fluctuation can tell us a lot of things. So the two main things to think about are how cold are the nights and also how moist is the soil. So Door County is pretty good on moisture. Um, There's a couple places in Wisconsin, like Milwaukee County and Ashland, that have had pretty severe droughts. So they might just skip their fall colors altogether. The leaves might turn brown and fall off without actually turning orange or red or anything like that. But Door County doesn't have to worry about that. Moisture levels have been fine. Uh, What Door County does have to contend with is how warm the nights have been. We have the lake effect, so we have water on all sides. And that kind of creates this it's a little bit harder for things to cool off, right? Because the summer heats the lakes up, the lakes kind of retain that temperature a little bit. So it's a little bit slower in cooling off unless we have really cold nights. And we have not had really cold nights. So that's going to do two things. Uh, It's going to mute the colors a little bit and it may delay the peak season by, you know, a week. And that's the prediction right now. I talked to Colleen Matula. She's a DNR silviculturalist. And she predicts that we will have uh, a more muted palette. The the cold temperatures really do influence like the reds and the purples on the trees. And since we've been a little bit warmer, we may not see as many of those. That's going to be kind of a yellow orange palette, maybe a little bit muted and peak will probably be delayed. So second week of October. Yeah. Okay. Second week of October was her prediction. And if you're driving around the county right now, kind of looks that way. Um, some of the reds that I'm seeing and some trees will turn red no matter what. Um, some varieties will only turn yellow or orange, but you're not going to see those very vibrant reds. One of the vibrant colors. Okay. Yeah. The reds that I'm seeing just out the window right now are kind of more brown. Uh, The leaves are, I'm I'm seeing a lot of browns coming through instead of those like bright yellows or oranges. Uh, And it's going to be Friday tomorrow. I would say probably next weekend is when they're going to peak. So that's what to expect in Door County. It's funny because we were voted like the best place to see fall foliage in the United States. And ever since then, I think we've been cursed because we have not had great <laughs> we fall We haven't colors. had that vibrant display or you just need that one storm to come through that takes all the leaves off the tree and then it's just complete disappointment. Right. That's what happened actually the year that we were voted the best place for fall foliage. We had really <laughs> great course. colors that were immediately ripped off the tree by like three days of storms in a row. So, yep. I can, I can relate to that. We have one tree in our yard. It's just gorgeous maple that just is just this fiery yellow every year. And it's a large tree. So it takes a long time for that entire tree to be just covered in these yellow leaves. And so I'm always holding my breath when those windstorms come through in October, just to, for those leaves to hang on. So I can at least get one photo of it, but 
Right. There's a decent amount of, of color on the trees right now. The Fall Lighthouse Festival is this weekend. Tickets are available at DoorCountyTickets.com if you wanted to see the fall colors from the vantage point of one of the lighthouses in Door County, which I think is a really great way to do it. You should still be able to see some pretty good colors this weekend, especially if we have good weather. That might help a little bit. But if you're planning a trip up here next weekend or you're planning some activities, and we'll talk about some activities here in a second. uh, If you're planning on doing some stuff next weekend, that's probably when they're going to be at their brightest. Uh, Though, again, their brightest might be a little bit less bright than they have been in years past. So last thing I want to talk about this week is fall camping. You wrote a story about uh, how to make the most of your fall camping trip. And I was excited to read this because fall is my favorite time of year to get outside. I love hiking in the fall. Camping in the fall is really fun. That like the colder temperatures, I'm I'm more comfortable when it's cooler. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I like getting out and bundling up and all that kind of stuff in the fall time rather than, you know, doing it in the peak of the summer. Although I did do a number of hikes this year in the summer. Um, But fall is really the time when I want to get out there because, you know, it's beautiful outside. It's cozy. uh, Animals are kind of, you know, active before they get into their their hibernation states. So walk me through your fall camping tips. Sure. Well, fall is one of my favorite times to do a lot of outdoor activities too, whether it's running or camping or hiking. I mean, there's so many perks to it. You've got the cooler temps. It's just kind of that nice crisp air that cleans out the lungs when you're out there. Um, No mosquitoes, or at least they've really died back. Um, So a lot of perks to just the fall activities in general. But when it comes to fall camping, this is something we're still hoping to maybe at least do one overnight camping trip with our little guy, just someplace close by. Um, But what I found is that in the past, a lot of people would come to Door County for fall camping because it isn't as crowded during the summer months. We have some of the most spectacular state parks up here with campgrounds. We also have some fantastic private campgrounds. Um, But as with a lot of things, when the busy season is and isn't has all kind of shifted with a lot of people working remote, some schools still being remote and just even the the general popularity of the area. So the one takeaway from this story that I found out is you might not see the reduced crowds you were hoping to see when you plan your fall camping trip. So plan ahead. It's not like in years past where you can show up necessarily and grab a campsite. Um, Most Everything on weekends is pretty well booked. You might be able to find something on the shoulder. So say like a Sunday night or maybe a Thursday night going into a Friday. And definitely the the fall festival weekends up here, those are really popular with with campers. So plan ahead as best as you can. Um, That would be probably the biggest takeaway. But other than that, I mean, there's still, there's a lot of options up here for camping. So it by no means discourages people from, from wanting to come up here and and camp uh, because there are a lot of opportunities and a lot of great facilities. Right. So stay vigilant, do your best to try to secure a campsite. Once you do, 
There's a couple things to remember. I think the the biggest tip that you mentioned was dressing for the weather, which seems like a no-brainer. But when you stop and think about it, like I asked for the weather report this morning and uh, my Google Home said that it's going to be 69 degree for a high and like 45 degrees for a low. And when you're camping, you you have to go through all of that. Like I think in the morning, turn on the heat and then around afternoon, turn on the air. Well, you can't do that when you're out camping. So what are your tips for how to dress for the weather? So dress in layers would be my my big thing. Um, and you want to have those synthetic fibers in your clothing, things that are moisture wicking, um, breathable. Those are always my kind of go-to things, things that are thinner, but keep you warm, that you can layer and take off as the temperature changes throughout the day. For sleeping, it's it's not such an issue if you are in a camper or an RV, but if you're tent camping, you want to make sure you have a really good sleeping bag that's appropriate for the weather. Um, you would probably be able to get away with a three-season sleeping bag at this point, something that's going to go down to about 30 degrees. Um, they make specialized ones for winter camping if you need it for temperatures colder than that. But at this point, you, know, you can probably get away with a three-season sleeping bag if you're going to be dressing in some base layers too, as, as your, as your sleeping garment. Um, when it comes to other things you want to have on you, it's always good to have a spare headlamp or a spare lantern because it gets darker sooner in the evening. So you will more than likely be doing some things in the dark, whether it's setting up camp or, you know, perhaps starting a, a campfire or any of those little things or just looking for things around your campsite. You want to have some adequate light um, to bring up extra batteries or extra headlamps for that. And then if you have a camp stove that you're going to be using as opposed to cooking over a campfire, it's always a good idea in any season just to have extra fuel with you for that so that you're not um, left without it. So those would be my, my kind of top ones. So just a, a little bit more prep in the beginning is really yeah. the difference between summer camping and fall camping. Of course, you need to have a lot of stuff with you, rain gear, that kind of stuff in the summer as well. But it's not necessarily as, eh, if it rains, if it gets a little chilly, it's not going to be nearly the the problem that it's going to be in the fall. So just right. a little bit more prep ahead of time will kind of get you where you need to go. Um, and if you forget your pair of mittens, a pair of socks will always double up as a pair of mittens as well. So there's a few little hacks you can use in there if you happen to forget your gear as well. Perfect. That's the that's as far down the survivalist rabbit hole as we'll go. You, <laughs> in a pinch, you can substitute your socks, socks for, for your mittens. mittens. <laughs> uh, God forbid you run out of water and you need to make do with something else. But, uh, <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me about food and fall. I think this is a really great one to kick off October. Probably have you back on later in the month to talk about all the spooky stuff that's going on. Um, Sounds fun. Speaking of spooky, you also did a uh, featured tour guide piece uh, on Ed Schreiner Schmidt, who is one of the haunted tour guides uh, for the Door County Trolley Company. And that's another thing that is is a, a great way to kick off October, it's starting to get in the spooky season. But we'll leave that story for another time. Uh, I'll let you get back to it. Sarah, thank you for coming All right. On. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.